Welcome to the Prosthetics and Orthotics Podcast with Brent Wright and Joris Peels. Today, we're going to be uh, doing this podcast. So why are we doing a prosthetics and orthotics podcast? That's, that's really the, the question. Well, we're doing it because today is a really, really exciting time. We're talking about the digitization of prosthetics and orthotics. What does that mean for patients, for practitioners, for companies? And you know what? We don't know. <laughs> we literally don't know. We don't know if every practice is going to have a 3D printer and a 3D scanner, or if only some will have them, or if they'll only be used for some devices, or if it's going to change the market completely with companies centralizing the production or producing these things overseas now because there's a digital supply chain, you can make them in India or something. We have no idea. And that means it's a very exciting time for us to look at this. And we're both very curious people. So I'm a 3D printing consultant. I've been working in 3D printing for about 14 years. I've done a few things. I've developed some materials for prosthetics uh, orthotics. And we've done some little projects here and there. But basically, I know absolutely nothing about the subject. <laughs> Because uh, what I do know is kind of from the material side. So I know quite a bit about additive and additive manufacturing 3D printing. And I think it could be applied well to this area, but I'm not entirely sure. So that's my angle, kind of. I'm kind of the, the kind of like, I'm going to ask questions, hopefully. And the person who knows a lot more about this subject is Brent. Uh, he's a certified orthotist and prosthetist, and he actually helps people with these digitization of this kind of thing. So tell us a little bit more about yourself, Brent. Hi, hi by the way. <laughs> hey, yeah. Hi, Joris. And that's, that's, that's super interesting. I would say that I'm, and this is why I'm so excited about this, is uh, we kind of flip-flop, right? You may not know a lot about the orthotic and prosthetic field, which I've been in it for quite a while now, but I don't know much about the additive field, you know? And I think one of the things is I don't know what I don't know, but I'm curious. And there's so many technologies out there that may benefit not only the field, but clinicians, workflow. It's it's a game-changing time. And just for the short amount of time that I've been in this additive space, I can tell you that patients really seem to benefit comfort-wise and long-term-wise wearing these additively manufactured devices. And so I'm excited about diving into all technologies uh, when it comes to the prosthetic and orthotic field. Uh, a little bit about myself. I was a, started off in the field as a technician. So typically what happens is that you get some experience in the field, you make the devices, you pour a lot of plaster molds, you get dirty around the lab, you grind things, you cut things down, and then you hand them over to a clinician. So that's the way I started. Then I went to school to be a clinician. And then now, 15, 20 years later, here I am playing in the additive manufacturing side, which I never thought I would be in because uh, really I was anti-technology. And so this is kind of a little bit of an irony in being a part of this podcast, right? Because if you would have said, hey, Brent, we're going to be doing this podcast in six years and you're going to be talking about additive manufacturing, uh, I would say that you were out of your mind, there's no way that I would ever consider digitizing anything in my practice, but I'm okay being wrong. And like I said, I think there's definitely a big benefit to being curious, really for the patient's sake, uh, and just putting my clinical bias and everything else aside and, hey, what is best for the patient? So that's me in a nutshell. So I think what's exciting about this is that if we look at additive, it's, it's not only additive, right? So it's 3D scanning to obtain 
hopefully maybe more accurate fittings, which may reduce the need for fittings, may make it easier. But 3D scanning isn't that easy. You know, you need software to repair the files. Uh, it doesn't always work. It doesn't always work really well. Uh, repairing the files sometimes is more complicated than designing the thing from scratch. If you look at just, just measuring or molding, it's faster and it's cheaper in some cases as well. But hey, you can acquire the file digitally. It's supposedly more accurate. Maybe it's faster. And then you can send it to people or you can keep it so that the guy doesn't have to come back again. Or you could maybe even skip a, a part in the molding process or something like that. So these are kind of things that are very exciting of the scanning. And this is CAD, right? So maybe the future generations of orthotists and prosthetists will learn CAD or MasterCAD or be necessary. Or maybe we'll see like uh, really easy customization software. It's like a t touch of a button. You don't have to learn CAD, whatever. We'll just make an intelligent tool that turns that scan into a device. Then we've got new materials which are being introduced new 3D printing processes as well. What uh, Brent mentioned is all the entire workflow. How does it work? And also the value chain, right? Who's going to be measuring? Is there going to be a certain different person measuring than making it now? Are we going to separate those two tasks? Are we going to be doing a lot of stuff still by hand? And then a lot of stuff is going to be made through milling, for example. Because that's also, I mean, it doesn't necessarily all have to be 3D printing. I mean, certain things, certain liners and things make a lot more sense in different materials. So we kind of already think that it's going to be kind of a blended thing. You know, we kind of think 3D printing is going to be kind of successful, I think. That's kind of our bed. Kind of successful, but we don't know where, right? Yeah. I think blend is the right term because, uh, and this is some of the stuff that I want to dive into in the podcast is, when does it make sense to traditionally fabricate and when does it make sense to 3D print or mill or, or what have you? And a lot of that revolves around the cost to produce a device. So for instance, I'm 5'11", and so my knee center to my foot is probably roughly around 19 inches, and then I wear a size 12 shoe, uh, US, so uh, which translates into like 29, 30 centimeters long. So you try to get that into a 3D printer, it takes up the whole space, and to press play on that 3D printer is expensive. So is it worth it for me to print a brace, a full brace, or is it worth it to break it down and make it modular? Is it worth it to carve it and traditionally fabri fabricate it with via vacuum forming? Those are all things that are interesting to explore to me because you would think that just 3D printing everything would make sense. And to some point, it does, like when we're looking at our practice, is it worth stopping everything and moving out of the digital realm to produce it? Or do we keep the cog moving? Yes, we might lose a little bit of money on it, but we're, we've got the flow going. We're not stopping the flow. And so I think that's, that's going to be the interesting kind of conundrum as people look at workflow is, can we go fully digital or how do we make sure that we don't trip over ourselves when we have to split off just due to the basic idea of we're not going to make money on this device. I think it's interesting. And there's some parallels as well. Like For example, the closest one I think is dental. Because in dental, you have an individual practitioner who sees patients and makes unique devices or measures or makes unique devices depending on what kind of dentist they are and where. And what we've seen there is that digital scanning, either through CT or, or other kind of intraoral scanners, have become quite commonplace. Practices have taken up 3D printing now, as well as labs. 
And there's been centralized labs, depending on the application as well, that have been formed. And also companies that have swept out of nowhere to, to print millions of, of bridges and crowns. And other companies are, you know, they used to sell the device, and now they, for example, sell the, the printers. So there's a lot of disruption in the business of it as well. And if you look at Invisalign, that's the other dental success where they print about 250,000 thermoforming inserts to make Invisalign possible a day. Uh, that's a huge volume. And that's just a new company that came into that market and that did something that a lot of people didn't think was possible. So that's also something we could be seeing in, in this, this area as well. I, I really like the, the parallel to dentistry too, because I see the value of a clinician in that they provide the clinical wherewithal to, to provide the, the final case. So like if you have a cracked tooth and you need to have a crown put on it, the dentist doesn't sit there making the crown. They identify that, hey, you have to have a crown put on. They prep it. Somebody else actually scans it typically, and they will specify, hey, this is what the material I want out of it. This is the shape. This is, this is the intent that I have for the crown, but they don't actually make it. But then they roll back in. They take the crown after it's fabricated and place it using the skill that they've learned and then they're on to the next patient and i believe that in many ways prosthetists and orthotists may need to start shifting their mind to think more like dentists and use their time super efficient because they're the only ones that can evaluate they're the only ones that can uh, measure and specify and they're the only ones that can fit but there's plenty of other people that can fabricate so I think it's a great parallel, Joris. We don't know if this is going to be successful. We don't know if this is going to even track in the future. But I think, I think it's somewhere to start, at least. We shouldn't say that like 100% will happen. What's really exciting is that now there's four dental offices. There's like complete packages. Like there's the software, the scanner, the printer, the material. And they say, hey, here you go. Boom. Buy this one thing and you're off. All right. So now actually a lot of these guys crowns not but they're making a lot of maybe molds and, and and polymer parts and stuff like that at the dental office or at the lab now with digital so that's actually a, a huge disruption in in that market what we're also seeing is that these guys are just like you're saying they're getting divorced from this making so in other dental areas we're seeing that a company that used to make is now only kind of like a scan originator if you will you know they're actually outsourcing everything on the back end and they're not actually making anything anymore because that's too expensive where they are. 3D printing is most successful in this dental thing. We make tens of millions of parts or hearing aids. We make tens of millions of parts. We disrupted that market, which is just milling and people desk side making these parts. We disrupted that very quickly within, within maybe three years or something like that. We took over most of this in the ear hearing aid market. So there you're seeing patient specific or, or geometry specific parts that are relatively small that are made desk side. And that are just like wholesale being replaced by 3D printers. Where actually the same guys there that used to be milling it, but now there's maybe fewer of them or the company's more efficient or what he's doing is more low cost. So that's another way of like that we've seen in hearing aids where the person used to mill the things desk side and now they use printers. Then in that uh, example, they also use the software. They orient the part on the software. They do exactly all of the fitting plus making uh, jobs apart from the scanning, which is done by the in the hearing aid store, let's say. So that's another parallel, I think, where we're getting you know patient-specific stuff uh, that's really successful for us. And there's a lot of things that 3D printing can't do. Well, I think that's really important that you mentioned, Brent, the, the whole part about that. It, the foot, my favorite one is a foot 
there was like a really big company that all of a sudden said they were going to 3D print a million shoes or something like that. And I very easily looked at the spec sheet and found out most large men's shoe sizes would not fit in their printer. And I was like, well, how is this going to work? <laughs> so I think this kind of thing, this, this this hybrid and blended thing that we could see success in some areas and, and completely non-penetrating other areas, I think is really, I could totally happen as well. Speaking of the hearing aids, and I don't want to go down a big rabbit hole, but are they actually printing the hearing aid or are they printing the mold for the hearing aid or is it a combination of both? No, what they're doing is they're printing the hearing aid shell uh, using VAT polymerization, uh, which is also called SLA or also DLP. They're actually competing technologies, but typically a company evaluating both of those things will, it depends. If they're used to building things on the factory floor, they'll like larger, more productive SLA machines more. Big machines, the light on top. If they're used to doing things desk side, the more compact, perhaps higher resolution uh, DLP machine will, uh, will appear to them most. It depends on their workflow, their volume and the type of people they already have. And typically these, they will directly print a compliant material that has to be printed, has to be removed from the build platform and flashed. It's UV hardened and washed as well. And then what they do is, well, the step before that is they orient it in the software to make sure that the scan, which is taken at the hearing aid place, right, which is either a scan of a wax mold or a scan of a, a direct scan with an intraoral kind of scanner, but then like one for your ear. That scan goes to them. They orient it to make sure that it all kind of fits inside. They print the shell then based upon that together with a whole bunch of other shells. And they then have the shell once it's post-processed and so once it's removed from the build platform and flashed and washed. They then actually literally physically put the electronics of the hearing aid inside of it and snap it shut. And that's essentially what it is. And this is only ITE hearing aids. So it's in-the-ear hearing aids. So it's the ones that are, are kind of hidden-ish where if you're talking to somebody you probably don't know, uh, there's no like big outside part or anything, uh, but it's just like this little kind of like it kind of covers the inside of your ear. And we print the vast majority of those in the ear hearing aids. So if you know someone that has one of those, then nearly all of them are made with the additive. Uh, but And all of the companies adopted it as well. Uh, so that was really interesting to see that, or not all, but it wasn't just one company like in the Invisalign example. Invisalign took a long time for people to follow them. And the hearing aid example, quite quickly, all of the major hearing aid companies like Phonak and Siemens and Shiaki and stuff were... Uh, uh, we're, we're doing this, you know, so that's a really big success story, but there's, there's tons of stuff we suck at, right? We suck at big parts. We suck at smooth parts. Uh, this kind of in the body compliance stuff is actually really problematic because of the photo initiator in the material and also the, the resin itself. And the handling is also quite problematic as well because it's a uh, the, these SLA materials or DLP materials are a skin sensitization agent. So this is one of our unmitigated successes, but if you look deeper, it's not exactly an unmitigated success. <laughs> so it's like we, we tend to get overhyped, but but right. and we are doing we're doing more real things than people maybe think. But it's also really tiny kind of cottage industry kind of thing, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of the hype side of things, I mean, what have you seen? I, and I can share a little bit around the prosthetic industry, around the hype. Like for me, it wasn't until 2018 with some of the, the newer materials uh, and then HP released the multi-jet fusion stuff that I feel like materials actually made sense for sending patients out long-term on a device. But before that, I feel like our field, the prosthetic and orthotic field, really wanted 3D printing of some sort but we're playing around in the FDM world with like desktop, you know, very inexpensive printers and failed. And it kind of flipped the switch or dimmed the switch for our whole field and 
maybe cooled cooled the hype for the people in the field. And so to me, it's been a little bit hard to turn the tide and start thawing that coolness to get moving. But one of the things that I've seen is, hey, if you post case studies, videos, and, and things like that of patients' lives actually being changed by some of this technology, that's where the rubber meets the road. That's where people perk up and listen. So I'm just curious, like, what your feeling is from an outsider not knowing our field, and that might be a little bit of surprising to you f- with the history that I just shared uh, for why people are not adopting the technology as fast as maybe. So there's there's very little entrepreneurial uh, zeal by people, startups or people outside the industry to approach this industry. There's very little knowledge about how large the industry is. And if you're talking materials company, they'll look, they'll look at dental, they'll look at hearing aid, they'll look at... Uh, automotive and then all of a sudden they didn't reach they don't reach this right so it's just not top of mind for for the materials vendors or the the 3d printers and there's no startups that say hey we're going to be doing exactly this there's like a dozen startups that do like this complete materials printer software package for dental there's not a single one that does it for orthotics right so so that's that's kind of like it's, it's it's not top of mind right the other thing is that flexible materials, like you rightly say, like TPU, I'd like, and the, or the, yeah, there's been new TPUs on powder bed fusion. MGF has a, a polypropylene material that's inexpensive and very high performing. But this is very fairly recent. It's really difficult to 3D print materials that stay flexible and stay kind of coherent for a very long time. Uh, it's a problem for us. So, so and flexibility is something you are, you know, that does, you do need it around the socket or around uh, kind of like, uh, 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 making things fit and stuff like that. So that was a major limitation. And also, I think when the 3D printing hype was at the biggest, 80% of printers or 80% of prints failed. And if you're trying to do this for a business and you've got a patient waiting for something or Mary is going to come in tomorrow and then she wants something for you, that doesn't work. Now, you know, we're seeing a point where even inexpensive printers, most prints, once the thing is calibrated properly, most prints succeed. So on the, the desktop printers, uh, a lot has changed. But a lot of the parts you guys need are actually quite large. If you're looking at a socket or a larger part, it's, and also these feet-type parts, are actually quite large for us. So that makes it more expensive. It limits the number of devices, and it pushes the device cost up. Recent developments at HP, MGF, and also the TPUs and Powder Fusion are also you know, taking time to percolate to the industry. Because then you're talking about, like, you know, you're talking about a $700,000 printer, and and that's a, a, you know, a bit more investment than, than most people can take on. So those are the general things we're seeing that there's just there's just not a lot of entrepreneurial activity on this field. There's not a lot of uh, people outside saying, yes, this is the my startup. Like we're seeing people that are like now uh, doing essentially variations on Invisalign, right? So this is a success. This is huge. It's a multi-billion dollar company and there's several other multi-billion dollar companies that are just copying it essentially. And only now are people doing this, right? Only now we're seeing a Zenium, which is like an Invisalign, but then for East Southeast Asia. Right, or we're seeing ones just for China, and that's actually a really recent thing. So there's a, a there's going to be a delay before we see this kind of enabling entrepreneurial activity, where people say, "Hey, I'm going to arm the orthotist and prosthetist with a toolkit or a software thing or or something that's really specific for them." Did you say it, arm? Was that pun yeah. intended? No, no, I'm sorry. No. <laughs> I, 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 there you go, Joris. I, uh, I Funny guy. I do, I, I, no, 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 no. We can't do this. We can't. We seriously can't. I was thinking about why do prosthetics cost an arm and leg? Uh, but but no. 
No, I can't. We can't do this. We can't. This is a serious podcast, Brent. This is like serious. Oh, okay. Let's, serious, let's, let's, serious let's bring it back together I then. I do not do that, actually, <laughs> at all. Anyway, so... Yeah, those are the things that are really retarding the growth of the adoption. And of course, like people that like to do stuff with their hands, right? They're experiential learners or they're people that like to work with their hands. Sometimes don't take well to, to being removed from the making process by a software thing. And also, we can't forget that it takes about 2,000 hours to learn CAD, right? So a lot of people, if you don't learn CAD, you can't just casually pick up CAD. You know, you can't just do it. and You can't just get started out of nowhere with it. And not a lot of people realize that you can just hire people to do it, sometimes quite inexpensively. But CAD is a real block that, that stops adoption. So somebody might be interested. They don't have, if they've never learned CAD in, in college or whatever, then they can't just adopt it. It's just impossible without hiring extra people. And that's also really keeps people from trying it out. Right. Just speaking of the CAD side of things, on my journey, you know, dealing with some of these organic shapes, you just can't bring it into, say, a SolidWorks or whatever and do your offsets or what have you, because in SolidWorks, you need to have step files or, or, or something that you can work with to thicken and that sort of thing. And I know the softwares are getting better, but um, I think in the same sense, like people that know CAD may not know how to marry the organic shapes with the dimension shapes uh, to get something out that will print. So that's been some of my struggle just in my journey. But what do you, and I know you're more connected into the CAD space and people that are really good at surfacing are actually really good at this kind of work, but just kind of curious on your input on that idea of it's CAD. Horrible. It's just horrible. So on the one hand, CAD is too difficult and also it kind of locks you into a package. So an early choice for SolidWorks will probably you know, condemn you to working with SolidWorks forever and working with SolidWorks-based businesses. You know, this, the switching cost is very high. Uh, the packages themselves are difficult to learn and they're difficult to work with. And yeah, especially for organic shapes. And especially for like maybe people who haven't 3D scanned don't know this, but you end up getting like an almost perfect scan and then like there are holes in it, right? Uh, there are parts that, uh, that are sold. Now, if you've ever worked with like an Artec Ava or, or the big, the expensive Artec uh, scanners, you can see that in a future, it will be possible to have like kind of like a, a better scanning process, if you will. So where it actually will highlight while you're scanning where you've been and where you haven't been and do this in a, in a correct way. Uh, with these really high-end art tech machines, we're seeing that. So that's on the scanning front, we're expecting that to improve. On the CAD front, nobody's really making super simple CAD software. So I don't see that improving much. And then on the resurfacing front, there's Magix does this, uh, GeoMagic, whatever. There's a ton of, of like, like, like packages that do this resurfacing. That's a that's a quite a difficult challenge because you you change the geometry, right? In some way, you're kind of painting over existing geometry and painting over air, right? So that's a bit problematic in the sense that it's always going to be, you know, what is your sampling size? How do you resurface this thing? What algorithm do you use? And what do you end up with? Is it going to be thicker? Or is it going to be thinner? But that's essentially a math problem, right? And as the machines get better at math, then we would expect that to get better. So, I mean, I think to everyone, I say, can we just outsource this? Can we just send these files to somebody and send it back? You don't have to master any of this stuff, you know, necessarily. Um, so, so do you feel like in the short term as like these math problems, and I like the way that you put that, you know, it, it, really, that's what it is. It's math in space and you manipulate and it's all you do is manipulate 
a math problem, but you can see the change uh, kind of graphically. But in the short term, that's kind of the answer is more heavy duty CAD, like specialized users on the front end. And then as the workflows or processes get better, then, you know, somebody may swoop in um, like a Invisalign type of thing where some of this stuff can be automated. Um, hmm. and, I don't know. And, like, this is, this is, I evaluate CAD software and stuff, and it's really weird because I don't know CAD. But the, the reason is I, I decided, I thought very early on that somebody's going to make like a CAD, but then the WordPress of CAD, you know? Right. So, yeah, okay. And I was like, I'm not going to learn HTML, right? I'm not the, right. <laughs> I, I don't right, want to learn right. HTML before somebody, or Dreamweaver before somebody comes up with WordPress, you know? And what we want is Twitter, right? We want to make <laughs> design. Yeah. 160 characters. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. As easy as typing. Um, and so we're very far away from that if we compare it to blogging, which is a, a much easier challenge to solve, just typing stuff on the internet. And everyone can type already, you know. Um, that took quite a while, right? So in the, we're talking the 90s until like like the blogging tools came out and the, and the, and the alts, right? It took quite a while in a quite a frothy investment climate as well for everyone to blog, which ended up only being 8 million people. So how accessible do you want it to be when? Right now, to me, because I thought somebody would come up with like uh, a really easy path, I never learned CAD and I, I outsource it. So I have a whole group of people and I'm just really good at working with them and they're really good at CAD. And one of them's for medical and the other one's for like uh, more difficult stuff and the other one's for more like uh, organic shapes or, you know, or cleaning up scans. And that's how I do it. And for me, it's not necessary to do that skill. And I do make products, right? I do have people that I know that I make products with and we design stuff for big companies and all this. And it's okay because there is a person out there that's amazing at CAD or 3D modeling or design. And then you can make something much better and you can just work together with that person. And that to me is a viable solution. I mean, I make products, but I don't make products every single day. Well, I kind of print stuff often, but I don't make new products like every single day, you know? So, but generally there's people and a lot of these people are like, you know, you can, and they're all over the world, right? So you can find the really talented people and work with them and you can pay them quite well and they'll be paid super well for where they are, you know, as well, if they're in India or if they're in uh, other places. So essentially what you're alluding to is kind of finding your your own niche, right? That's what works for you and your, the, your product development cycle. And if you can kind of, like if it was me, I have that sort of network of people like, hey, can you clean this scan up and send it over here to this guy? And I have it all in alignment, ready to go. I just want it like this and then send me back and I'm going to hit print. That that sort of thing. I mean, I like that idea. That, that to me is important also because the technology is always evolving and, mm -hmm. and you're going to deal with different things. And I don't think you could learn the technology if you're really interested in it. But as a business practitioner, you have to be smart with your time. You know, and if you don't have enough time, you should be seeing patients. That's what you should be doing. You should be on next to someone, finding out what their needs are and finding out what you can do better and coming up <laughs> with a solution. Now, if that solution is to design something better, right, and you have to do a, make a novel uh, device, okay, then I can understand that a really thorough knowledge of engineering and CAD and the hands-on approach is amazing. But if you're doing essentially the same thing over and over again, I mean, to me, I don't know, to learn AutoCAD for that is not exactly like the most exciting thing in the world. It doesn't differentiate you from anyone else. Sure. Yeah, I mean, I think that's where 
And that's what I love about our field is that we have very, very creative people that have been able to hand manufacture, traditionally manufacture things. And so if we can just turn the knob just a little bit for them and say, hey, we want you to be as creative or more creative and design the things that you've only dreamed of designing. And all you have to do is be able to communicate that to somebody and that somebody is really good at making your napkin sketch idea, whatever, come to life, then then the outcomes that we're going to see is better and better. And then it's just going to spawn more creativity within the field. And and to me, that's what's exciting. And there's also other things where we can never replace the traditional craft. I mean, a last second adjustment kind of thing right. or making something with your hands that is just going to make somebody a little bit more comfortable. That would take you hours with a 3D printer. That would take you hours with designing and 3D printing, you know, compared to molding something really quickly or, or making something uh, on, on the fly adjustments. They're always going to be faster, right? And and a lot of structures we can't do, smooth things we can't do, you know, straight pin kind of things is stupid to 3D print that. You know, there's like a ton of stuff that will never make sense. I mean, like you say, even if the whole workflow would be easier if it's all digital, you're still going to probably, probably want to use a big metal pin that's been made conventionally, you know? Sure, sure. Well, and I think, that, I mean, to your point on that is, I think where the other thing that has kind of cooled our industry is that there's a lot of people that haven't, uh, that have tried to make product or software without the clinical input. So they try to almost like shove this down, hey, you need this, but they don't understand the whole back end of what that means like yes i've created a, a product that is amazing but that product is so much more expensive than what i'm going to get paid for it i can't buy it yes do i want it for my patients absolutely but i cannot buy that so i still have to stick with what i'm doing it seems like there's a little bit of a disconnect and i think it's getting better though where clinical feedback is requested but it's to me, it's super important because if you try to remove the clinical expert from it, I truly believe that you're you're doomed to fail right off the bat. But if you kind of bring us into the fold and give us a little bit of uh, insight and and tweaking to what may suit the needs that we have and the needs of our patients to fit within a framework of how we're going to get paid and what the workflow looks like, I think that's that's going to be a better way to approach changing our industry than, uh, than giving us something that we don't need. Yeah, totally, dude, totally. I really like talking to you, Brent. I think this is a really nice first episode to get our feet wet in this. And we didn't even touch the, <laughs> the day of the <laughs> yeah. life of. Yeah, we're, what we're but, going to do for the next episode is we're going to look at the, the day of the life of an orthotist and prosthetist. And, and that's just to give me a little bit more of an understanding to – Figure out like, hey, you know, what do you actually do day to day? Like, what do you do from the, the beginning of the day to the end? Because I have no idea. But I think now we got a little bit of kind of like we kind of made our, our battle lines, if you will. We've kind of like kind of like scoped out kind of like where where we're headed and the call the the whole territory. And then we do that, and then we also have to look for guests. Huh? We need to find guests. Uh, it's not going to be people. a problem. Yeah, no? I mean, okay. yeah, no, I probably have at least twenty people that want to do it you know okay perfect yeah perfect, and and then you know from from my side of things 
and I saw that you liked the thing about the Linkster group that that came and visited Raleigh through the French embassy or whatever. They had reached out and said, hey, can we meet? Um, but the 3D printed silicone stuff, you know, whether it's them or other people, like I'd love to talk to some of that, those people that are into that. The um, people that are printing in the suspension, like the gel suspension Harder type of thing. Fresh out. That would be fun. And just to get their idea of like how it could apply. And I think that's where like some people in metals maybe of like, hey, do, do, do you ever see a time where, you know, 3D printing anything in metal for our external prosthesis or orthosis actually makes sense? Um, the other thing, like th th there's definitely some softwares that I'm interested in some printing manufacturers, you know? So I think it's, I think it's wide open, but yeah, I, I would have no problem filling probably 20 to 30 people within the next couple of days if we needed it. Awesome, dude. I'm looking forward to this. I look forward to this. So Brent, thank you for being here today. Yes. Thank you, Joris. I love the conversation, love the insight. And I think this is going to be a fun journey. Yeah, totally do. I agree with you. I agree with you. I hope so, too. I hope so, as well. This is the Prosthetics and Orthotics uh, Podcast. My name is Joris Peels, and uh, you were with, also with Brent Wright today. And thank you so much for listening. Yeah, we hope you continue to enjoy this journey with us. Thank you.